So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us understand your words to us. Help us understand the ways that you are so faithful to us through Scripture. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to welcome those of you who are watching online. It is great to have you with us, as well as all of you here in the sanctuary as well. As some of you know, I was the last two Sundays I was away on a mission trip to Cambodia with some people from this church as well as some other churches. And one of the things we did for three of the days that we were there was to train Cambodian pastors at a pastor's conference. And on the first night for dinner, they served what I would call a plate of death. Basically just a heap of dead sea creatures, all of which tasted like they'd been dead a little too long, like something was wrong with it. And one of the dishes that they served was squid soup, with the squid looking not so much like calamari, but like squid. And my roommate had already gotten sick from eating something that he shouldn't have eaten, and I, I kind of wanted to avoid that fate. So I decided that I would simply stick with the rice. But when the server came with the rice, the Cambodian woman next to me pushed him away, so he walked off with the rice, and then she turned to me and started talking at me a mile a minute in Khmer, the Cambodian language, in this motherly tone that made me sure that what she was saying was, no rice for you until you eat your squid. So I dutifully choked down the squid, staring at my empty rice bowl. Let me ask you a question. Metaphorically speaking, how do you respond when your rice bowl is empty? When something in life doesn't feel like it's working, like it's empty? Or to use, to switch the metaphor to the passage that we read today about the prophet Elijah, who is in the middle of a drought, and he goes to a creek to get water, and the creek dries up. How do you respond when the creek runs dry? When something feels empty and dry in life. And that can happen in lots of ways. Maybe it's your finances that have dried up. Or maybe it's your career that feels empty and dry. Or your relationship with God. Or your marriage feels empty and dry. Or maybe things aren't exactly empty and dry. There's water in the creek, but it's not exactly overflowing. And you would love to have more adventure, more excitement in life. And if nothing in your life right now feels empty or dry, then just listen to this sermon and pick up some tips maybe to help other people who are in that season or remember it for when you are the next time in an empty, dry season in some area of your life. Because we all face them at some point in some area of our life. We're starting a new sermon series today on the prophet Elijah, who is a big deal in the Bible. In fact, in, throughout the thousands of years the Bible covers, there are only three outbreaks of ma of major outbreaks of miracles. One occurs with Jesus in the New Testament. The other two are with Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. Outside of those three men, there actually aren't that many miracles in the Bible. Most people who lived in the Bible, they never saw a miracle because they were rare, just like they are rare today. They happen, but they're rare, which is why, as you've heard me say many times, they're called miracles, not ordinaries. And in the passage that we read today, there's a drought. And God sends Elijah out into the desert to a small creek where he can get some water. But then the creek dries up. And Elijah's response to that shows how we can respond to dry times in our lives, in our marriages, in our faith, in our careers, our finances, health, whatever. And the first thing to do when things seem to be dry and empty is this. We need to ask. We need to ask God this question. What are you trying to develop in me? Because often God uses the desert times in our life to develop in us things that we are going to need for our future. 
In the Bible, the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years looking for the promised land. But during those 40 years, they develop a legal system, a government, an army, things they didn't need when they were slaves in Egypt, but things they were going to need to be a nation state. King David spends years as a fugitive in the desert, hiding out from King Saul. But in those desert years, God uses them to develop in him things like leadership and a closer connection to God. David writes many of the Psalms in the desert. The bottom line is the desert has been too good for too many people for too long to be all bad. God sometimes does his best work in us in the desert. Immediately after college, I worked as an intern in a church for a boss who often did ministry in ways that I just didn't agree with. I, you know, in my vast 21 years of experience, I thought he just didn't know how to do ministry right. But later, about 12, 13 years later, when I became a pastor, I realized, oh, this is why he did what he did. And I started to do some of the things, same things he did in my ministry, and it worked. Now, at the time, I thought that job was kind of a desert season for me. But I realized in retrospect, God was actually teaching me things I was going to need years in the future. I know folks who have failed in one career, but God used that desert experience to redirect them to one that was more suitable. Or to teach them to be less focused on career and more focused on family and relationships. So when the creek runs dry, as it does from time to time, instead of just praying, Lord, fix this, Lord, fix that, those are fine prayers, but let's also pray, Lord, what are you trying to develop in me? Show me so that I can cooperate with you. Because then the desert doesn't feel so dry anymore. It feels productive. It feels like it has a purpose. Second thing, when the creek runs dry in our lives, marriages, careers, whatever it is, we need to remember how God has provided for us in the past. Now, I know you know this, but we may forget it sometimes. I forget it sometimes. In this passage, Elijah has no fear about the drought. Why? Because he has seen God provide in the past. It's God who led him to the creek in the first place. So when the creek dries up, Elijah has confidence God is going to do something else to provide for him based on past experience. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the way I roll. Okay, whenever a problem comes, I immediately forget everything that God has done for me in the past. I'm a very much, what have you done for me lately, God, kind of a guy. I immediately forget everything God has done in the past, and I just kind of worry about the present. It's sort of like a a story that someone sent me not too long ago about a man who was in a car accident. And he wasn't seriously hurt, but he was knocked unconscious, and, and, and so he had to spend the night in the hospital. And when he woke up, his wife was there. And he said, you know, honey, you have always been there for me. When I was looking for a job and couldn't find one, you were there for me. And then later when I was fired from that job, you were there for me. And and now I wake up from this accident and, and here you are. You're still there with me. You know what I think, honey? I think you're just plain bad luck. And that is sometimes how I treat God, right? I minimize, I forget about, I explain away every, all the ways he's been there for me in the past rather than remember them to give me confidence for the future. Ask, remember, and finally, the third way to triumph, even in dry times, is to do something scary and counterintuitive when God says to. When the creek runs dry, when things get hard, God's people do not shrink back in fear and try to get all protective. Instead, God's people advance and move forward and often do things that God asks them to do that don't make any sense that seem kind of scary, counterintuitive. The real solution to Elijah's dryness is a series of steps God asks him to take that make no sense at all. First, he says, go to Zarephath, which was a foreign country hostile to the Israelites. Okay, that doesn't make sense. And then God says, 
go to a widow. There's going to be a widow that's going to help you out. Okay, back in the Bible times, widow usually meant poor. So that doesn't seem very promising. And she does turn out to be poor because when Elijah finally finds her and asks her for a piece of bread, this is what she says. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Whoa, Debbie Downer. (laughs) Right? I mean, not very cheery, this widow, right? But then Elijah, prompted by the Spirit of God, says the craziest thing of all. He says, give me some bread and the flour and the oil will never run out. God will resupply him. Right. I mean... If you were this widow, would you give your last little bit of food to some weirdo prophet that shows up? Definitely contraindicated, right? And yet, yet it was the way of provision in a time of want. It was the way of life in a time of death. It was the way to fullness in an empty season because God provided and the flower never ran out. There is a pattern throughout all of Scripture that goes like this. Trust, risk, receive. Trust, risk, Receive. Now, the first and the last we're kind of okay with, but that middle one is a whopper, isn't it? When the creek runs dry in our lives, in our marriages, in our careers, in our finances, or when we just simply want more excitement in life, we need to trust God and do the scary, counterintuitive, counterculture things He tells us to do, and then we will receive. And this is part of how we know that the God of the Bible is the real God. And here's why. Because if your God never asks you to do something that seems counterintuitive, if your God never asks you to do something that shocks you or that scares you or that offends you or that you don't want to do, that is a God that you made up and that fits inside the confines of your mind. But the real God will ask us to do things that we would never imagine doing. And we don't need a voice from heaven to tell us what some of those things are. Yes, he gives us nudges in prayer. And yes, we should follow them after we've tested them. But you know what? Let's just start with Scripture. The things he tells us to do there are counterintuitive and scary enough. And if you want help knowing how you can know what's in Scripture better, talk to a pastor on this staff. Talk to a Christian friend. You know, maybe sign up to be part of Mon V that we've talked about last week. One of the many things it does is help you figure out how you can best learn Scripture according to your learning style. So that you can know what God asks us to do in Scripture. Because when life feels empty, when the creek runs dry, God's people do not hunker down and try to hang on. God's people charge ahead and do the things God asks us to do, even if they are scary. Now this is not part of how we actually usually operate, is it? Usually when things get hard, usually when the creek runs dry, what do we do? We tend to retreat and protect and hang on and hunker down. For instance, when we face financial fear, what do we tend to do? We can get protective about our money and try to hang on to it and grab onto it. That's what the widow is facing in this story. Not enough resources. But what, was, what does God tell us to do? The opposite of our instincts, right? Give some of it away. And then two things happen. He provides for our needs. Maybe not all of our wants, but our needs. Right? The flour jar was not replaced daily with bushels of flour and filet mignon and chocolate crepes, right? But it was replaced with enough flour for each and every day. He meets our needs. And we discover that we can be happy on less than we thought we could. When life feels boring or routine, what do we do? We tend to try to fill ourselves up, right? More vacations, maybe a new house, maybe a kitchen remodel. That'll, that'll do the trick until you actually do it and then it's hell on earth. But anyway, right? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe if I just get more stuff to myself, right? What does God say to do when life feels empty, boring, routine? Empty yourself. 
Not fill yourself. Empty yourself. Serve. Be part of God's rescue mission. And then it helps you forget about yourself. And that's freedom. Counterintuitive. When a relationship goes south, what do we do? We tend to blame the other person, withdraw from the other person, shield ourselves, protect ourselves, right? But in Scripture, God tells us to do something counterintuitive. Make yourself vulnerable. And ask God to show you the ways that you have sinned against that other person because 99% of the time when there's a problem in a relationship, two people are actually involved. And then go ask forgiveness from that person. And usually that begins a process of reconciliation. But even if that doesn't happen, it is one step that you can take to help get rid of the anger in your heart. When the creek runs dry, Jesus' people do not hunker down in fear. They advance and do the things God says to do, even if they seem crazy at the time. Because they work. This is time-tested, guys. 2,000 years. It actually works. And then even if the problems we face don't go away, we can still triumph over them emotionally and spiritually. I may have told you before about a woman in my former church who was homebound because of a chronic illness. She was in pain. She had to take a lot of medication. And then she volunteered to call people from her home to see if they would be interested in teaching Sunday school. Volunteered to do that for her church. Not something that you would, you would really maybe want to do if you were, had a chronic illness. But it actually became something that was life-giving to her. Because after a while she stopped, she didn't just ask people if they wanted to teach Sunday school. She'd ask them about their lives. And they would open up and tell them what they were struggling with. And she would pray for them and encourage them. And these people would say to her over and over again how important her ministry was to them of caring and encouragement. And suddenly she didn't feel homebound anymore. Now she still had the health problem, but she also had something to live for other than managing her disease. And life got bigger, better, more interesting because she did what Jesus said to do. She served. Pastor Robert Lewis tells a story of being at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida on just a miserably hot, humid Florida day. Standing in long lines, you know, hours long, which, you know, he referred to them as human blenders, which I thought was a great description. You know, walk, turn, walk, turn. You've been there, right? You've done the deal. At it's a small world and all of that, right? Once they waited in line for an hour only to get to the very front to find out that the ride just broke down. So hard day, right? Well, after a full day of this, he wanted to go home, but his kids wanted to see one last ride, E.T. But the sign said, 70-minute wait. So he said, in a moment of leadership brilliance, I said to my kids, I'm hot, I'm tired, let's go and I'll buy you something. Right? Bribes and threats, the essence of parenting, right? <laughs> Bribes and threats. Well, right then this guy walks up that they didn't know. This guy walks up to him and says, would you like to make this a one-minute wait? So Robert is thinking, should I follow this guy or is he a nut? You know, but he figured even if he's a nut, you know, at least we're out of this stupid line and maybe we won't come back. So they followed the guy. And he took them through this side door into the ride. When they got inside, all the attendants were greeting this guy. Hello, Mr. So-and-so. He was clearly their boss. He took Robert and his family all the way to the front of the line and said, enjoy the ride. Robert said, I wept uncontrollably. <laughs> he says they still talk about that moment in their family. Not the ride. It turns out E.T. was kind of boring. But he says the great mercy that was extended to us on that day. Right? <laughs> the almost biblical proportions of mercy. Why did they get it? Why did they receive it? Because they followed someone who asked them to take a step that seemed to not make any sense at the time. That's a metaphor. Jesus says, follow me, do the things I ask, even if they seem crazy, and you will receive a blessing, and life will get more interesting. Think about the widow in this story that we read today. What an adventure she had. 
Now we know that years later she goes on to be financially more stable. We know that because later on the text says that she lived in a house with an upper room. And back then that meant that you had some kind of financial resources. But I bet that until the day she died, the most exciting season of her life was when she was living from one day to the next, giving to God in defiant generosity against that drought, watching God fill that flower jar up day in, day out, which showed her that he was Lord of all. He was Lord no matter what. I recently heard a story about a woman named Kathy who lost her job as a nurse, and this was years ago. And she was scared because her family needed that income. And she looked for a while for a new nursing job, and finally an employment agency told her about a position as a nurse at a prison. And Kathy immediately said, "Uh uh-uh, no way, not going to do that. Prison, dangerous, scary, no. Well, the next day she was in her car listening to music, and the lyrics of one of the songs caught her attention. It said, I was in prison and I rotted there. I would prayed that you would come. And she said, well, that's a funny coincidence. And then over the next 10 days, whenever she turned on the TV or listened to the radio, there were references to prisons. Her friends inexplicably started talking about prisons. They never had before, but suddenly they had a prison deal, right? Her devotion book kept mentioning prisons. It was like in this prison motif for days after days. Finally, she said, okay, I get it, God. So she went to work as a nurse at this prison. She hated her first day. Terrible. She was scared. One woman in the prison yelled at her, I hate your guts. Right? And, but that afternoon, she went to pick up her daughter from high school, and God started to work on her. She noticed the faces of the high school students, and she began to think to herself, you know what, the inmates in those prisons, that prison that I work in, they didn't have many of the advantages that these kids have. And her heart was filled with compassion for them. And she said to God, what can I do for them? God brought two things to mind. First, she was going to talk to the female prisoners in a non-judgmental way about abstinence. Because so many of them had been hurt by giving themselves too freely to men. Second, she decided to give any prisoner who wanted one a Bible. So when they would come to see her for some health issue, she would get into a conversation with them. And mostly she would just listen. But whenever there was a chance to talk about Jesus, she'd take it. Not in a pushy way, just a natural way. And then if if they were willing, she would give them a Bible, easy to read version, and she would say, if you want, I can help you understand what's in there. When she was treating one man, she was in a conversation with him, and along the way in the conversation, the man just happened to say, you know what, I'm a Satanist. And Kathy said, oh, well, that's cool. And the guy goes, you think it's cool? You think it's cool that I'm a Satanist? And she said, yeah, God made Satan, so if Satan's real, God's real too. You just have the wrong guy on the throne. (laughs) Well, that was kind of intriguing to him, and that opened up a whole conversation, a series of conversations, eventually led him to become a Christian. Another guy, as she was treating him, she asked him, what are you in for? And he, he dropped his head and he said, capital murder. And Kathy said, well, Jesus is a capital God who can forgive you capitally. And he thought that was a quirky way to say it. And that kind of opened him up and began a conversation. And it ended with her giving him a Bible and saying, if you want to help understanding what this is all about, I'd be happy to help you. She's given out over a thousand Bibles over the years. And even though technically she's not supposed to proselytize, the prison officials look the other way. Because as long as the prisoners are in their cells reading the Bible, they're not causing problems. The upshot is the prisoners love her and she loves them. They share their deepest feelings with her. She is making a big difference in their lives. And she has no fear in that prison because so many of the prisoners would gladly help to protect her from anything that threatened her. When the creek ran dry, when she was unemployed, God used that desert season to put things in her character that he needed and to redirect her to a new job. And then she took a step that was scary, that seemed kind of counterintuitive, a prison, you know, that seems scary, right? 
But what did God do? Her life got bigger, richer, deeper, better. She's got hundreds of people who love her. And she gets the thrill of knowing that she is making a difference through the power of Jesus in a very dark place. And oh, by the way, she got a new job when she was unemployed. And a huge adventure. And she's braver and she's less anxious. All because she took a step that at the time didn't make a lot of sense. So where is it that the creek seems a little dry for you? Marriage, finances, faith, career. Maybe you just want more excitement in life. Will you ask, Lord, what are you trying to do in this desert area of my life? Will you then remember how God has provided in the past and then do the steps that he is asking you to take that seem counterintuitive and scary, but that will actually lead to hope, confidence, and joy? Because here's the thing, guys. When the creek runs dry, either in our own lives or out there in the world, the economy or the culture or whatever it is, that is not the time for God's people to retreat in fear and try to hang on to what we've got and get all protective. We belong to Jesus, who conquered even death through his resurrection from the dead. We belong to him, and so we can be the fearless ones who defy our circumstances in the name of Jesus, knowing that the dry times are just an opportunity for God to display his power in our lives. And that means that we can celebrate even in our trials. We'll give even when we don't think we have enough. We'll forgive when we want to retreat. We will be part of God's rescue mission to this world, even when all we want to do is go on a permanent vacation, knowing that when we do the counterintuitive things, God's says to do, either in prayer to us or what he says to do in Scripture, we see that he is Lord even in the desert. He is Lord even when the flower jar is empty. He is Lord even when the creek runs dry. And we do not need to be afraid because our hope is not built on our circumstances or our careers or our finances or our relationships or anything else. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And we don't trust in anything else but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that is how we thrive even when the creek runs dry. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us to know the steps, those scary counterculture, counterintuitive steps you are asking us to take in whatever area is dry in our life right now. Because we know that when we do that, you will bring new life. And you will bring new joy and you will bring hope. So Jesus, show us what those steps are. Give us the courage to take them and we will give you the glory when you work through them and bring about great things. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.